I will be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Thank you, Melissa. Well, good morning, church. A um, modern-day story of the parable that Melissa just read is of a visiting evangelist who finished his message on the self-righteous, proud Pharisee and the tax collector. He then gave an altar call for all those who wanted to slay their pride. Well, the pastor was the first to move out of his seat and make his way to the front. And he knelt down at the front, began to beat himself on the chest, and cried out, Oh, Lord, I am nothing. I am nothing. A few minutes later, the assistant pastor, seeing the pastor at the altar, went and knelt down beside him. He also began to beat his chest and say, Oh, Lord, I am nothing. I am nothing. Well, it happened then that the youth pastor and the minister of music and eventually the whole staff joined with the other two and knelt at the altar and crying out nothingness before God. A little while later, a poor man dressed in shabby clothes whose job was to sweep the floors of the local library, he came also forward and knelt beside the, these pastors and began beating on his chest, adding to the refrain, Oh Lord, I am nothing, I am nothing. Well, at that moment, the pastor looked up, saw this man, nudged the assistant pastor and said, Well, well, just look at who thinks he's nothing. Pride is a slippery thing, is it not? Right? We think just when we're doing something good and maybe moving forward to the call of God or something that is impressed upon us, pride can take over. It knocks at our door. It shows its ugly face in a worship service. It can be present when we look to help someone or, or when we're confronted in a sin or serving in a ministry. We're reading a passage of scripture. We're, we're trying to, to start our day by praying and, and there's pride or we're trying to carry out some noble task. Pride is a problem for every one of us in this room. If you don't think so, then you might be the proudest of all. On the other hand, if you think you have humility, then you probably don't. I think it was Jack Benny who said, humility is one of my best qualities. On a t-shirt was written, I'm humble and proud of it. Written across the door of a university dorm, it said, no, I am not conceited, even though I'd have every right to be. Humility is a tricky thing. 
If I began my sermon this morning by saying my message today is on humility, and in my opinion, it's one of the finest sermons on the subject ever written, you probably wouldn't hear another word I said. The D.L. Moody, who used to pray, Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. There was another preacher put it, humility is something we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have. You see, God is not looking for preachers who can only give the best sermons. God is not looking for people who can present a good resume. Scripture is clear as to God's choice for kingdom work, those who are small enough for him to use. And that takes us to our passage this morning uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5. I wanted to introduce the subject with the passage that Melissa read, but we're looking still at 1 Peter chapter 5. Some of you who have been with us in this series might have been scratching your head on that one and say, I thought it was 1 Peter. It is. Turn your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5. Follow along. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses here as, as Peter speaks to humble shepherds, humble sheep. Humble shepherds, humble sheep. Now, if you think that this time, this morning, and God's word is going to make you uncomfortable, believe me when I tell you that it was not any less comfortable for me and having to prepare it for today. Well, we've been making our way through 1 Peter and the theme on living on hope. And what we have seen in this letter is that we're to live in such a way that our lives bring credibility to the power of the gospel. That when the unbelieving world sees a hope that they don't know, they then ask us about the hope that lies within us. Are they asking? That people, as, as they look at our lives, they should really see something that can only be explained supernaturally. And that is the same thing in our subject this morning on humility. Today, we are surrounded by a culture preoccupied with self-assertion and selling ourselves and making ourselves out to be better and greater than we really are. We live in a world where the stuff of leadership is coercion, money, and power. And Peter here presents an otherworldly mindset. So if you're not there, I hope you're there. First Peter chapter 5. There are several aspects uh, to humility as seen in these seven verses. Uh, don't get lost in this first uh, heading this morning, humility and leaders. Humility and leaders just go, okay, I'm not a leader, it's not for me. Hang in there, because I think you'll find something that is for you in this section, certainly as we move on. See, it takes humility for all of us in this room to serve for the right reasons. All right, Peter begins this section by addressing elders, elders, leaders. He says, verse 1, 1 Peter 5, to the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Now, that's a humble statement, by the way. Peter could have taken pride in his position as an apostle, as one who saw the sufferings of Christ and Christ's resurrection. He could have played the apostle card right here. But instead, what does he do? He refers to himself as a fellow elder. Now, why does Peter have some words to spiritual leaders? Well, I want to set it in the context here. I want to remind you of what we've just looked at, the verses prior to this. Remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original writings of Scripture. So what we have in the first verse is connected to what just went before it. Well, what was Peter just talking about? Suffering, trials, 
difficulties. And these suffering Christians need encouragement to keep on living for Christ in a hostile world. When the expected visitor called suffering comes, as we looked at last week, we must trust in the one who allowed the visit. And that's the note chapter 4 ended on. And in light of these difficult times, Peter then says to the elders among you. You see, perhaps there is no more critical time for humble, godly leadership than right now and the times in which we live. So Peter exhorts the elders here. Be shepherds, verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock. Whose flock? It's God's flock. It isn't, it isn't Pastor Brian's flock. You're not Pastor Brian's flock. It, is, it isn't Pastor so-and-so's flock. It isn't your flock. It's God's flock. Let that kind of sink in. Because if the church is God's possession and not our own, we ought to be careful how we handle it. We should treat God's possession, the church, with utmost care. If everybody wants to attack it, we go, no, you cannot smash and shatter God's possession. I won't let you. And so that's why Peter goes on and he says here, that is under your care, that is under your care, serving as overseers. Now, I just want to point out one thing here. In this section, we find three words that are used interchangeably in the New Testament to speak of spiritual leadership in the church. It speaks of elders, and then it speaks of shepherds or pastors. Same word, same word. And it also mentions overseers. They're all used interchangeably in the New Testament. And so what's the charge to these spiritual leaders? It can be summed up in the verb used in verse 2, be shepherds. Now, have you done any thinking lately as to why God chose the term shepherd and the term sheep to describe leaders and the church? What do we know about sheep? Well, I don't claim to have ever worked on a sheep farm, so I'm totally dependent on my reading uh, of other of the sources to kind of help me fill in some of the gaps in my own understanding. But our first thought about sheep is what? They're not very bright. <laughs> That's okay. That was a good place to place that one. See, but the reason for that reputation might be many, but one of the reasons is they're prone to wander and they're capable of being totally lost within just a a mile or two from its home. It knows its own pasture, but taken in unfamiliar territory becomes completely lost. That's what sheep do. And without a shepherd, lost sheep would just walk around in circles and totally helpless to find food and water and then eventually die. Sheep are particularly vulnerable to dying if left alone. And there's perhaps no animal in the world as defenseless as a sheep. When they're attacked by a predator, they don't kick They don't scratch, they don't bite. At best, they run away. That's it. Now, do you wonder, do you wonder if God created sheep just to make a spiritual point? And when God speaks of a model for leadership, the picture doesn't come from the world of sports or or theater or academia or even the business world. The picture comes from the fields of Judea. And for God, God to call the leaders over his church shepherds is not necessarily a flattering term. It's been said the lowest people on the social ladder in Bible times were shepherds. It was a messy, dirty 
job. That's why it's been said, if you can't stand the smell of sheep, don't be a shepherd. (laughs) And I'm not just talking about the animal world. We stink sometimes. I say we. And the stuff that God looks for in a leader often runs counter to what the world says. The business world says you have to be a big shot to make it. You must be aggressive and forceful and self-confident and self-assertive. And and don't be this pushover if you're going to make it as a leader. Are those the same qualifications in God's program? Well, some of those things may not be wrong. But is is, is God looking for big VPs, CEOs? No, he's looking small. Now, I want you to notice the several phrases Peter uses to get his point across. It is a not this, but this contrast that he sets up here. Pick it up with me. Uh, let your eyes go to the middle of verse 2. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, let me just unpack that a little bit. There's, there's three admonitions here. The first one is serve not out of duty, but delight. Serve not out of duty, but delight. Stories told of a young man who was sound asleep one Sunday morning when his wife burst in and said, Hun, you need to get out of bed. It's time for church. With his face buried in his pillow, he responded, responded with a muffled voice, Why should I get out of this bed? Well, I'll give you three reasons, his wife replied. First of all, it's Sunday. We go to church on Sundays. The man moaned, played tug-of-war with his blankets with his wife. Second reason, she says, because we have 30 minutes until church starts, and you need to take a shower. Still no movement. Third reason, he asked. Third reason is you're the pastor, and you need to be there. (laughs) Now, that's ministry under compulsion. Okay, just in case you wondered, that's not a personal illustration, okay? No, no, it hasn't gotten that bad. But there have been times in my 34 years of ministry, it felt more like duty than delight. All right, second admonition is they're to serve not for personal gain, but from privilege of service. And then thirdly, they're to serve not driven by the love of power, but a life to be patterned. For Peter says, be examples to the flock. Someone has pointed out that there's a, a demand leadership and there's a command leadership. Demand leadership says, do what I say because I'm in charge here. People don't usually want to follow that kind of leadership. It's been said, if you're leading and no one's following, you're just taking a walk. Well, command leadership, on the other hand, command leadership says, follow my example. See, godly shepherds, humble shepherds don't demand leadership. Rather, by the quality of his life, he commands it. For such a person is is easier to follow. His life backs up what he says. So, So, general principle here for any of us in this room, if you want others to follow you, don't talk it, live it. Nothing inspires confidence in the time of difficulty more than a godly person who cheerfully uh, shows the way. How does it take to lead like this? We're back to the word, humility. Humility. So church, this is one way you can pray for your leaders. This is one way you can pray for your leaders in this church. Because Abraham Lincoln, who aptly put it, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And man, we've seen that go amok, haven't we? 
in the church. See, the distinguishing mark that, God's lead, that set apart God's leaders is humility. It's not saying nothing else matters. It's not to suggest that there aren't any other qualifications, but if a person is not small enough to be used by God, then no matter what other skills he may possess, he is not fit to be God's leader. Humility requires we serve for the right reasons. And verse 4 gives us a motivation, and I'm not going to spend time on this, but in verse 4, here's our hope. And when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. See, shepherds and sheep have this in common. We are all under Christ, the chief shepherd. Let's not forget it. Christ rules. He's to be in charge here. Humble shepherds, humble sheep. That's God's way. All right, now, if you didn't get application in the first point, the second point is humility and relationships. This will now touch us. Humility and relationships. Because is there anything that will destroy a church faster than the attitude of pride? When one person's pride in competition with another person's pride, because that's how it goes, and it can't get along, we've got problems. When per- one person's pride says, I can never forgive that person for what they did, or I refuse to listen to anything that person has to say, pride has won. Do you need to swallow your pride in some area in your life right now? Listen, I had to this past week. I'm still kind of swallowing it. Not with anybody here. But it was a big gulp. I didn't want to swallow the pride. We need to swallow the pride. There might be some area right now where you're digging in. And you know you need to swallow pride if you're ever going to move forward in this. It's eating your life. All right, let's look at verse 5. He says, young men in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Now, Peter targets young men and, and, and perhaps young women here, I think, because it might be in their idealism and impatience that they might be the first ones to challenge those serving in leadership. While attending a Bible college in my 20s, um, I was with some other fellow students, many of which, like me, were preparing for the pastorate. There was a common practice we did in Bible college And it was to gather in the college lounge and discuss everything that's wrong with the church today. I mean, we had it all figured out. We just had a class on it. (laughs) We just read a book. We had it all figured out. Many discussions took place in that lounge at college, critiquing just nasty stuff about pastors and other leaders and what's wrong with pastors today. And arrogance just filled the room. And honestly, I had, I had a distaste for it, but at times I found myself getting caught up in it. And so the word to these young men, before you can ever lead, you must learn to follow. You must learn about submission. Now, Not submission to elders who are morally wrong or preaching heresy or going off the rails. I'm not talking about that. And I don't even want to get into that. Job done, he then turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I'll come and help you again. Who was it that stopped the help? None other than George Washington. President George Washington. Are you small enough? Am I small enough to be used by God? Do we think more about serving or being served? Do we think more about giving or taking? 
See, it's one thing to be called a servant. It's another thing entirely to be treated as a servant. I don't want that. Will you dare pray as you begin each day, Lord Jesus, I would so appreciate it if today you'd bring me someone whom I can serve. <laughs> Will you be bold enough to pray that? Lord God, what's it's going to be? Show me someone because I want to be in that Attitude, humility, and relationships. All right, I got to move to humility and anxiety here. Humility and anxiety. Verse 7, I want to read that first. So get your eyes to verse 7, please. Cast all your anxiety or cares on him because he cares for you. Now, many can quote verse 7 at the exclusion of verse 6. The NIV has verse 7 as a separate sentence than what just... Uh, came before it, it shouldn't be really, it's one continuous thought in the original. It really should be read like this, six and seven. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time by casting all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. Or simply put, humble yourselves by casting your anxieties, your cares on him. So what's the connection between humility and anxiety? Well, I believe what this is saying here is that the threat to anxiety is humility, that the thought is that we humble, when we humble ourselves, we throw our, our worries, our cares, our anxieties, our stresses upon God. When we do that, we do that because we're humble first, because we need Him. Now what's meant by casting all our anxieties on Him? Well, the only other time casting is used in the New Testament in Luke uh, 19.35. It's prior to our Lord's triumphal entry, the disciples who were sent to get the colt that Jesus was to ride on. And it says there that they brought the colt to Jesus and casting their garments on the colt, they then set Jesus on it. So they, they no longer kept the garments in their hands, they cast them off and put it on the animal. That's the same word that's used here. And I find that very interesting. I hope you do too. Because what a picture of what we are to do with our anxieties and our worries and our cares and our stresses. What is the situation in your life right now that has you all worked up? I mean, I mean, you're wound tight about it. What's the situation that, that's just absolutely stressing you out? What's the anxiety that seems too weighty to carry, that, that worry that's just strangling the life out of you? What is it? Now, in your mind, picture that, that anxiety, that worry, that care, that stress, it's in your hands. Okay, do you have one in mind? I hope you do. Will you then take that anxiety that's in your hands and cast it, throw it onto the Lord? In the Philippines, there was a driver of a caribou wagon. He was on his way to the market and he saw this old man carrying a heavy load of potatoes on his shoulders. And it was really weighing him down. So taking compassion on him, the driver invited this old man to ride in the wagon, take a load off, and, and gratefully the old man accepted. After a few minutes, though, the driver turned around to see how the man was doing, and to his surprise, 
he found this man still straining under the heavy weight of the potatoes for you not taking the burden off his shoulders. He's sitting there carrying it. And I thought, that's what we do all the time. We say, I'll give it to you, Lord. No, carry it. God said, I'll take that load off you. Thanks, that's great, Lord. But I'm going to sit here, I'm going to still carry it. We feel as though we have to carry the burden. You don't have to carry it around. Throw it onto God. He wants to carry it for you. Now, hear me on this. I'm not suggesting at all that the only solution to your anxiety, just trust God, will you? I'm not saying that. Not. I know it's more complicated than that. I know, I know there are God-given physical helps that a person may need to avail themselves of in those times. I get that. I don't, I don't want to oversimplify what can be very difficult psychological and physical issues. I, I don't. But I don't want to miss what it's saying here either. Because I don't think it's neither or. I think it's a both ends. Because who here in this room doesn't carry anxiety of some kind today? Right? I mean, spiritual leaders carry the burden of ministry. Single moms trying to make ends meet and struggling single-handedly the demands of parenting. Teenagers trying to fit in and, and they carry the weight of just so many confusing things in this world and, and, and of relational fallouts. Seniors in high school worrying about their next step. There are those involved in people's lives you, you carry concerns. There are some here that are worrying if they might lose their job. Parents having to release their grown children causes some anxiety. There's anxiety perhaps likely in this room over, over guilt. or There's anxiety over the pressure to perform. Uh, there's anxiety over aging. There's anxiety over loneliness or the upcoming lab work. There's anxiety over the confrontational meeting you know you need to have with someone or, or the deadlines at work. And, and some here have anxiety over being anxious. Right? What, what anxiety are you holding in your hand? Pastor Brian, what is it? Will you throw that on the one who wants to carry it for you because he cares for you. You say right now, it doesn't seem like he cares for me very much. It doesn't seem like he gives a rip about what's going on in my life. He cares. He cares for you. And this is where humility comes in, this matter of anxiety. Because the problem of anxiety is the problem of humility. All things being equal. All things being equal. If I am anxious, it likely means that I know better than God what needs to be done. Have you ever thought of it that way? I mean, what is it? It's pride. It suggests I really could do a better job handling life's problems. It, it is that anxious, stressful situation that backs you into the corner where you must admit, I don't have the bigger picture. I don't see all the connections. It takes humility to trust God with the outcome and that he will lift you up in due time. Casting requires humility. I must humble myself before God, trusting that he really has it all under control even when I cannot see it. See, I won't cast 
My cares are on the Lord. If in my pride I think, I think secretly that I can, I can do a better job running my life. I won't cast it on him. If in my pride I'm going to do it my way, as the song goes. So, so I ask. Check it with myself. How is pride keeping you from trusting in God's care for you right now? What is it? Can you admit your need of God to help you today with your cares, with your anxiety? I'm not saying it's a one and done deal. But you see, it isn't this big person, the, the person who claims to have it all together that God uses, but the weak and the humble. Hudson Taylor was founder of uh, China Inland Mission. On one occasion, someone said to him, you must sometimes be tempted, Mr. Taylor, to be proud because of the wonderful way God has used you. I doubt if any man living has had greater honor. To this gracious word, Mr. Taylor replied, on the contrary, I often think that God must have been looking for someone small enough and weak enough for him to use, and then he found me. See, we need to begin where I began in the sermon this morning with a tax collector from Luke 18, 13. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I need you. You see, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That compels me to ask, how might you be forfeiting grace right now because of your pride. Are you short on grace? Might be because you're too big, too big on yourself. I got this, we say. I ask, do you? Pastor John Ortberg tells the time when he... um, and several of his friends were walking through a fairground and they spotted this mechanical bull. You know, that bull that tries to buck people off and you pay for it. Why anybody would do it, it's beyond me. But the guy operating the bull said, watching it is nearly as fun as riding. So or- Ortberg then says, I told the bull operator that I wanted to ride. He took one look at my middle-aged body and asked, are you sure? Well, that guaranteed, Ortberg says, I'm not going to back down now. He explained to me that the bull has 12 12 levels of difficulty. He has 12 levels of difficulty. He said, it might not be easy, but the key is you have to stay centered on the bull. You have to follow the bull. You have to shift your center of gravity as the bull moves. So Orberg said, I got on the bull. It started slow, and then it started moving faster and faster and jostling around, and I was holding on real tight when I remembered his advice, so I loosened up, and it kept moving faster and faster and jolting and bucking and jumping, and he says, I was hanging on sideways. My arms were flailing all over the place. He said, I just hung on, and finally the bull slowed down, and it stopped, and I was still on the bull. I mean, it wasn't pretty, but I made it. He says, I imagine how surprised the operator of the bull would be that I had triumphed. So I looked over him in pride. He looked over at me, shaking his head. He smiled and said, nice job. That was level one. (laughs) Kind of puts it in perspective. Does it feel like you're barely hanging on? Is God trying to teach you about your limits? It's not going to take you to level two when you say, no, I got this. I'm going to do this myself. I don't need you, God. 
self-sufficient, self-made. There's too much of your life lately, Ben, about what you can do. Do we need to pray, Lord, I'm tired of going my own way in this. I'm done. I'm done with trying to carry on without you. Are you small enough for God? Let's pray. Lord, not easy to hear this, not easy to preach it. Even starting out, I feel disqualified. Because I know those pride centers. I know those places where I dig in. Because I want to save face or whatever it is. God, show us, show me what we need to learn from this this morning. And as we sing our, our closing um, hymn, the song this morning, it's always one that convicts me because we sing, I surrender all. And I wonder if I'm really saying I surrender some. Not all. So this is our desire of our heart. We may not be there. We haven't arrived. But our desire is, God, we want to surrender all to you. It's the best place to put it as we hold on to that sum, there's no joy in that. So teach us, even through our singing, this final song this morning, to lean on you, trust in you, and surrender to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.